I'll be reading from Genesis 32, starting down at verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the Lord. If that is not strange and weird to you, it is because you're already familiar with the story. But if that is the first time you're hearing that story, you're likely saying, what in the world is this about? One of the things it's about is this. It's teaching us that it is through honest encounter with God that we come to understand the true dimensions of our life. It is through honest encounter with God that we come to understand the true dimensions of our sin and God's gracious provision for us. We are spending several months studying this unfolding story of grace in the Old Testament. Why is that? Well, it's because of this. Last week, last Sunday afternoon, I, like many of you, watched in disappointment for three, four hours as our beloved Indianapolis Colts found a way to lose to the worst team in football and thus missed the playoffs. It was a sad day. Um, And of course, predictably... Shortly after the end of the game, social media exploded with calls to do two things. Fire the coach and cut the quarterback. As if the coach who was a genius in the middle season is now the worst coach in football. Or the quarterback who had the best touchdown-interception ratio three games ago is now terrible. And you can find another franchise quarterback at Walmart or something like that. Um, So whether those calls were legitimate or not, they weren't. Whether it was, you know, wise or not, those that angst was tapped into something real. And here it is, that with the Colts at least, the success of the entire enterprise is wholly dependent on the key people. The coach, the quarterback, the lineman, the success of the whole enterprise is dependent on the key people. The reason we are studying the unfolding grace of God in the Old Testament is this, that the success of the entire enterprise is not dependent on the key people but upon the one who makes the promise that the fullness will come about. And what we see in the Old Testament is remarkable. We see a God committed, committed to bringing the redemption in Jesus to into this world, even though it comes through people that have varying degrees of unfaithfulness and let's just say unevenness of character. Right? They low-quality people sometimes. 
That's what this, the story of the Old Testament as it unfolds. That's one of the things we see today in the character of Jacob. And then in the New Testament and on into our world, what we see is that this same God is still committed to bringing the redemption of Jesus to, and to the rest of the world through people of varying degrees of faithfulness and quality, <laughs> like you and me. One of the characters of, let's, of uneven quality in the Old Testament is Jacob. You may know the story from uh, Mike McBride preached last week on Jacob, or Abraham's binding of Isaac. Isaac goes on to marry Rebekah. They have twin boys named Jacob and Esau. Esau is born first, but even at the birth, somehow uh, it's recorded that Jacob, when Esau is born, has his hand on Esau's foot heel, right? As if trying to grab on to his birthright. And what we see in the rest of the, of the Old Testament is Jacob, he's just not a good character. He just, he, don't be a hero, right? Don't, don't, don't be a hero like Jacob. Jacob's not a hero. His name means deceiver. So if your name is Jacob, you might want to take it up with your parents like, why did you call me deceiver? I don't know. You're probably named after the patriarch. Okay, that's fine. But the name Jacob actually means one who deceives, right? Now we can redeem that up and I'll get all that. But uh, then Jacob, we see as the story unfolds, this guy he tricks his brother Esau out of the inheritance. And then he connives and tricks his father into giving him the patriarchal blessing, which is kind of lost in our culture, but was very meaningful then, the approval of his father in that way. And then because he's afraid that Esau, who his brother is kind of like a warring character, is going to kill him, he flees to the land of his distant relative Laban. So he goes to to work with Laban and for Laban, and then an ironic plot twist, he, Laban tricks Jacob into marrying both of his daughters, Leah and Rachel. Now, in the, it's a polygamous culture where men were able to have multiple wives. And let me just make a caveat and say, the Bible never endorses this. Just because something's in the Bible doesn't mean God's saying, yay, this is a good idea, right? He uh, People are killing each other all over the place, right? <laughs> it's, stuff happens in the Bible. God steps into a culture and works in that culture, and often then redemption works to supplant that thing. So like Jesus is saying, you know, from the beginning, God intended one man and one woman. In this culture, is polygamous. Uh, Laban tricks Jacob into marrying the one he loved, Rachel, and the other daughter that he didn't care for so much, but, you know, Laban needed to marry her off, named Leah. But then Jacob continues in his business and... Um, he grows his business, if you will. He's a shepherd. He grows his, his herds through some trickery again. And one thing I neglected to mention is on the way from his home to Laban, uh, this is the place where uh, Jacob has this vision, and some of you might have seen it in the Children's Story Bible, is Jacob's ladder. He has this vision of God, angels descending and ascending. It's probably not a ladder. It's probably the stairs to the heavenly temple. It should be called Jacob's stairway. And then I put this in your insert here. Jacob, he has, God gives him this beautiful vision. And then check out Jacob's vow slash prayer right after this vision. Okay? This is a model of what not to pray. I'll put it in your insert. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. 
But the name of the city before that was Luce. Okay, so far so good. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Cool, giving conditional statements to God. Verse 23. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Okay, like, that is a terrible prayer. He's like, if God does exactly what I want in the way that I want it, when I want it, then he will be my God, and then I will give back to him. Right? That is a fail. That is a spiritual fail right there, right? That is not heroic example. So that's on his way to the land where he goes and he meets Laban, he meets Rachel, he gets tricked into marrying Rachel and Leah. His crops, his flocks grow through, through other trickery. And then God comes to Jacob in Genesis 31 and says, it's time to go home. It's time to go back to your home country. And he's now going to face the biggest test of his life. Because who's at home? Esau. And in those 20 intervening years, Jacob has grown, but so has Esau. Esau's grown more powerful, more wealthy. He was a warrior to start with. Now he has his own standing army. Think of a tribal chieftain with his own army. He has more resources than Jacob. And so Jacob, on his way back to his homeland, you see him, like, Jacob is always conniving, he's always deceiving, he's always, he's always trying to put his, his thumb on the scale to make life work out exactly the way he wants it to. Even though God's made promises him to, to him to bless him, he's like, I, don't, I want to take control myself and make it work out. So he sends people on ahead, says, tell Esau this, tell Esau this, do this, do this, do this. So butter him up, soften him up. And all that comes back to Jacob is this from his servants. Esau is coming out to meet you with 400 men. So Jacob thinks to himself, that could be a welcoming party or it could be 400 warriors and I'm in trouble. Given how he left the relationship with Esau, it would be reasonable to think this is not a hospitable welcome that's coming toward me. It's 400 warriors. But in in those 20 years, Jacob has grown a little bit. And we see that in Genesis 32, even though it's a couple chapters later, it's 20 years later. Here's what Jacob prays. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. Now, hold on. That's actually not what God says. He says, return to your country and I will be with you. Jacob spins it up a little bit and says that you will do me good. So let's give him a break. But he's praying in the right direction, right? Verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan 20 years earlier, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. So there's growth that's happening in Jacob's life. A little bit, over 20 years, right? But that's not the story. The next thing that happens is the story. And here, Jacob learns that it's through honest encounter with God that we learn the true dimensions of our sin and His grace toward us. 
we learn about encounter with God from Jacob. Now, some of you might say, and maybe rightfully so, like, is it legitimate to think about our walk with God from a patriarch, from, from Jacob? I mean, he's in the Bible. My name's not recorded in the Bible. He's part of the big story. I'm just like a little peon. Is there, is there any similarity? Well, in one way, there's not any similarity between us and Jacob at all. And another way, there's complete similarity. What do I mean? Jacob is a patriarch. He probably the, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, through whom the line of Jesus come, right? He's going to have Judah. The story unfolds, and Jesus, now blessing to the world. You're not Jacob. I'm not Jacob. Who is the man with whom Jacob wrestles in this passage? This is what theologians call a theophany. It's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus in person before the incarnation, before he takes on flesh. Uh, this is, Jesus shows up a couple times like this in the Old Testament, and anytime you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, same thing. It's God showing up before he takes on flesh as Jesus Christ. Uh, in Nazareth, in Bethlehem, uh, this is him showing up in person. The God Jacob wrestles with is the same Jesus that dwells in us by his Spirit. So there's something completely similar with Jacob's encounter with God because Jesus, God doesn't change. So this is a good way to read these Old Testament narratives, by the way. We're looking for what is God like, the God who dwells in us, the God with whom we have relationship and calls us into relationship and we walk with. This same God is the one Jacob dealt with. So we can learn what it is to encounter God from the nature of God encountering Jacob and Jacob encountering God. So how do we encounter God? Let's look at Jacob. Verse 22, the same night he arose, Jacob arose, and took his two wives, two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, which is a small river. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had, and Jacob was left alone by himself in solitude. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Why is he alone? We're not quite sure. Some people think so he could be alone with his thoughts, maybe so he could pray. He is getting ready to face the biggest challenge of his life, a brother who does, did not like him 20 years ago and is strong and is coming out to meet him with 400 soldiers, and yet God has called him to go home. And the text is really abrupt. It's like, and Jacob was alone, and a man wrestled with him. And you're like, what? Did the guy just materialize out of nowhere? Well, maybe that's what the text is saying. It's, there's painfully few details. We don't know. You can create, spin a whole narrative around it, and we just have these details. He was alone, and now there's a man wrestling with him. We don't know. Did he think it was like an advanced scout of Esau? Did he think, like, does God pick a fight? What does he do? It's like, let's go. Well, I don't know what his kind of like. Does he just come up and put him in a headlock? Does he start throwing down? I don't know what's going on here, right? He wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. We're not sure how late it was. Like, uh, to me, like a three-minute round in a wrestling match seems impossibly long. Hours? I don't know. That's just terrible. Um, here's, the, here's the point, though. Jacob met God alone. He met God alone. Now, we, want to make, we make a big deal about community in the New City community. We want to love each other well, and when we don't, we want to correct it. We're always trying to do that, and we're always correcting, right? We're not, we're not perfect people. We try to be honest people, but, you know, we try to face each, things with each other. We try to pray for each other and serve each other, and if somebody has a need, we try to meet it and meal trains and all this kind of stuff, all good things. 
Community is really important. Don't hear me uh, dismissing community at all. And yet at the end of the day, each of us has to deal with God by ourselves. Each of us. We live in our own bodies, not in somebody else's. With our own emotions and our own fears. Right? We get the diagnosis from the doctor. We get the bad news from the relative. We get the discouraging news from somebody we love. We have to we deal with that in our own body. We may deal with that in community, but we deal with that in our own body before God. And that is hard in our culture, right? It's hard to be alone with God. I have a 2018 Mazda 3, great car, I guess. You know what one feature of that car? You cannot turn off the radio. You cannot turn off the audio input. You can mute it. You can turn down the the brightness on the screen. You cannot turn it off. As soon as that car starts, it wants input into your life. Over And it's easy to go through every moment of our day and have constant input and never be alone. And what do we see about a God right here? That he's the type of God who wants to wrestle with his people alone. And so the, the natural application question for each of us is, have we dealt with God himself by ourself ever and recently? I don't know what the biggest thing in your life you're facing right now is. It may be huge. Totally get that. But the first thing we're actually facing in our life right now is God by ourselves, Being called into relationship where we deal with him in solitude. There might be circumstances in our life that tempt us to, to engineer and strategize, to make it work out like we want. Okay, fine, but let's first deal with God. That's what Jacob is teaching us here. Maybe for a long time we've been drafting off others. Maybe you're a young person. You know you're old when you say the phrase like young persons. I'm sorry. So like maybe you're a middle schooler or a teenager or a college student that has been sort of drafting off the faith of your parents or people you respect. You, you kind of agree, you believe, maybe you've been admitted to the communion table, all that. that's very good, it's very good, it's very good, and yet you must deal with God by yourself. We all have to. There ha- we have to come to a point where we get alone with God and deal with Him. Now you might say, like, I don't know how to do, I, what are the rules on that? What is the, I don't know what to do, what are the parameters? Do you think this the angel of the Lord came up to Jacob and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to wrestle. It's going to be Olympic style. You're going to start on bottom. I'm going to start on top. No, it's a wrestling match. It's gritty. It's dirty. It's grimy. And that is what it is to get alone with God. Maybe you've been part of the church for a long time. You love the ideas. Oh, it's kind of stimulating. Like the worship. It kind of, we can just kind of move along with the, the stream. And that's just fine. That's good if we also will deal with God alone. It's personal. I, I, I never wrestled except for in gym class in middle school. Some of you maybe wrestled in high school or college or whatever. All I remember is like, one, middle school guys are kind of funky anyway. They're nasty. Like they're learning still to use shower and deodorant and stuff like that. Um, it's very personal, right? Wrestling. Nothing goes untouched or unsmelled, right? It's just like, 
You know what they had for dinner three days ago. It's really personal and grimy. Uh, I think that's what's being connected. Actually, the Hebrew word for wrestle has to do with dust. They're rolling around in the dust in the dirt. It's a dust up, literally. So don't miss the calling here, right? We want to be in community. We must deal with God by ourselves. It's a privilege. But it's not necessarily like sunshine and roses if this happens. A couple weeks ago, I gave an illustration from the silver chair and when, when uh, Jill met Aslan. But remember, in the, in the first book of the Chronicles of Narnia, sorry if you're not familiar, but uh, Susan is hearing about Aslan, the Christ figure, who's a lion, and she hears that he's a lion, and she's talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Again, you've got to know the story to, to get the fullness of it. And she said, oh, I thought he was a man. He's a lion. Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver said, aren't you listening? He's a lion. <laughs> of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's not safe, but he's good. The reason dealing with God alone is, is not always sunshine and roses is because he's not tame. It's not. He is safe. He's not safe, but he is good. Jacob is facing the hardest thing he's ever faced. He gathers himself to get alone to prepare to do this. And what does God do? He comes and makes it harder. It's like, oh, yeah, I know you're preparing to face your brother. I'm going to fight you all night long. Right? I'm going to bring a harder hardship into your life when you're preparing to meet this hardship. Guys, this is not the God of the liberal theologians who will never do anything hard to his people. God's just a nice, old, kindly, grandfatherly person who just affirms everything. Not this God. He's also not the God of sort of the conservative health and wealth person who says, all you have to do is do what God says and everything will turn out. Right? God told him to go back. He's like, okay, I'm going back. God teaches him to pray. He's like, well, I'm praying better. He, he's obeying God and he's praying better and God makes it worse. Right? Why does he do that? Because this is the God of the Bible. This is the God of the Bible who's intent on showing us something, namely himself, when we wrestle with him alone. Who, this God brings hard things into our life for reasons we do not know. And yet the Scripture insists that these hard things can be good at the very least because they lead us to encounter God and depend on him more fully. We wrestle alone. Maybe we say we wrestle alone in the dirt. Let it be messy. You don't know how to wrestle with God? Ask Him. We get alone. We've got to take that first step. And we do that until reality sets in. Look at verse 25. Uh, in the incarnation, later, yeah, Jesus becomes fully human. And when He becomes fully human in the incarnation, He is subject to human limitation. This is a preview of that, but without the same limitation. Check this out, verse 25. When the man... God saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. He touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Like, that's odd, right? The man cannot prevail, can't prevail, and he's like, okay, I'm done with this. And he touches his hip, and it dislocates his hip, which takes, I've read this, about 100 pounds of pressure at the right angle. So this is the Hebrew word for the slightest touch. Boom, 100 pounds of pressure, he's done. How is it that this guy can't, that this God can't prevail against Jacob, right? I think about it like a dad wrestling with an 18-month-old, 
right? We had little, you know, kids, you know, they want to wrestle with dad, fine, 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 and they're, I can't prevail against them because I keep letting them go, right, until they poke in the eye. He's like, oh, hold on. We're done, right? I have a great reserve of power that I'm not operating against you because I want to be in this thing with you. But the moment you poke me in the eye, I'm going to say, okay, we're done. Uh, this is God. I'm calling you, Jacob, to deal with me alone. Yet I have a great reserve of power. Let me demonstrate that. Boop. And probably, I'm guessing it's with this touch, right, that reality sets in for Jacob. Who am I dealing with here? He sees that he's dealing with not just a man, but with God. He knows it's God because later he says this, I've seen the face of God and lived. Probably here, Jacob realizes, I'm wrestling with God. Maybe he also realizes, maybe I always have been. By trying to wrestle control of my life away from him, instead of simply receiving what he offers, trying to make sure that it happens. Some of us are very good at that. Here's what happens when reality sets in, verse 26. Then he, the man said, let me go, for the day has broken but Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. So many think because this is pre-incarnate, this is similar, the dynamic is similar to what God said to Moses later in Exodus, which was, no one can look on my face fully and live. So the sun is starting to come up, Jacob. You need to let me go. The sun's not up yet. The sun comes up later. Later, the narrative points that out. So God is saying, let me go to Jacob for Jacob's good. But Jacob says, I can't until you bless me. I, I need you. I need your blessing. What you have to say, what you are for me, I need you. I've been striving my entire life for what's right here in front of me. The blessing's not out there. Jacob sees this, right? The Some of us still live with this, right? The blessing's out there. If I just get this, if I just get this, if I just get this, and you're miserable. Why? Because the blessing's not out there. Jacob sees right there, well, the blessing is not in the inheritance I tried to get from my brother. The true blessing is not in the approval of my father. The blessing is not in this woman that I love. This blessing is not, and all these things he's, he's exercised trickery for, right? As, as the blessing is not in the success of my business. The blessing is not even in safety for my brother Esau. It's right here in you. And that's what I want first. I must have this. He's in excruciating pain. His hip's been dislocated. He may be risking his own life the sun is coming up. And he says, all that's worth it if I get what I get in you, if I get you. You know, we looked at Genesis 15 a couple weeks ago. In Genesis 15, 1, I didn't say this in the sermon, God says to Abraham, I am your shield, your reward will be very great. That's Genesis 15, 1. An alternate Hebrew wording for that, and it could be the same, it's the same word order, it's kind of hard to translate these things. In fact, the NIV does get it this way. God says, I am your shield, I am your very great reward. We're not quite sure if that's what it's saying in Genesis 15, 1, but that's what Jacob is saying right here. You are my reward. I get, I get you. The blessing's not out there. It's, it's right here. 
I can deal with everything else if I get you. I want to just a little preview of deeper on page 166 of this book. Uh, my wife pointed this out to me. It's really just a great... Um, Dane Orland's quoting Lewis talking about, you know, we tend to view the world, sort of the religious world, and obedient and disobedient people. He says, Lewis goes on to conclude that this is too simplistic to view only two kinds of people, the disobedient and the obedient. For we can be obedient in the sense that we follow a certain code, yet in a tax-paying kind of way. Okay, I'll do it. The nuclear core, this is a Ortland again, the nuclear core of authentic Christianity is not simply doing what God says, but enjoying God. And then he quotes Lewis, the price of Christ is something in a way much easier or far less than moral effort. It is to want Him alone. Many times, I would say maybe everything we've been striving for in our life, it's always out there. Maybe it's still out there to you. Friends, it's not out there. It's in Christ. It's before you. Jacob, for the first time, is seeing this. He spent decades of his life chasing that which evaporates when he tries to lay hold of it. When the God who's right before him has been pursuing him every day of his life, maybe you're in that boat. True encounter with God yields a desire to have him. Verse 27, he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, from which the nation of Israel was named eventually. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob, you used to strive with man. You're a deceiver. You're fighting everybody. Even from the womb, you're wrestling with Esau in the womb. You're grabbing his heel. You're tricking him. You're tricking your father. You're tricking your uncle. You're tricking your wives. You're tricking your brother again. Everybody just fighting with people all the time. But now you've striven with God and you've prevailed. How have you prevailed? You saw that the blessing wasn't out there in fighting with man for everything. It was right here and laying hold of me. So really what he's saying is, you did it. You get it. You, Jacob, your name is Jacob. You're a deceiver. You're a conniver. You have failed, and I reward you. Why? He's gracious. When we, wrestle, when we know this, that when we come and deal with God alone, his intention is to give us grace. Sometimes it, ra- it comes wrapped in a, bizarre-looking package, but his intention is to be good to his people. Jacob has come to see that the blessing is actually the Lord himself. And a true encounter yields a desire to have even more of him. Verse 29, Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So we think God doesn't tell Jacob his name, right? Jacob's like, I want to know you more. What's your name? And essentially God says, not yet. Not yet. That's further in the redemptive story. I'll reveal that to your descendants in Exodus 3. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. The truth is there's always more of me to know. This is all you can handle right now. Right? Now that you've come to see that the blessing is me, keep leaning in and you will see more. Verse 30, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which means face of God, saying, for I have seen God face to face, 
although the sun's not up fully yet, so like in the, in the dawn. <laughs> and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him, then as he passed Penuel, confusingly, it's the same word, just a different Hebrew spelling, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So that became a tradition in Israel. They didn't eat the animal uh, hip sinew. Uh, that's not something God commanded. It's something got into their culture. Jacob went away limping. Now, most theologians and writers over this that don't like to over-spiritualize things, they say something like this. We don't want to over-spiritualize this passage with the whole limping thing, but darn, it's a really good picture, right? So having said that, I want to proceed to over-spiritualize the passage just a little bit um, and maybe just say it like this. The sign of encounter with God is that it leaves us with a limp. Not a physical limp but marked by a profound sense of humility. That I'm the type of person that almost until my dying breath will try to wrestle my life out of the hand of God. And I know he makes offers me promises in the gospel, but I would rather do it my way and strategize my way, and it takes a lot for me to say, oh, Lord, it's in you. I get you. I get relationship with you. But there's a profound humility also that comes from the fact that when we do that, we see he is more than generous and there is an endless fountain of grace to give to us over and over and over again when we deal with him honestly alone. We are marked with a limp for a while and then we forget and we have to have another encounter with God, right? I get that. So true encounter with God brings a certain kind of weakness, a humility. But I entitled this sermon, Weak, Strong People, because in that humility, we become free, and we become confident in the power of God in our life and for His people. It brings a certain type of confidence. Look at, verse, look at Genesis 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. He still does not know if this is good or bad. Okay, so at this point, we have to say, Jacob is not perfect yet. He's still growing, right? Redemption's a work in progress. Sanctification is only partial. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front in case it's bad news. <laughs> he's going to deal with the servants and their children first. And then Leah with her children, he didn't like her as much. Just, I'm sorry, but it's just the, the story. And then Rachel, and last of all, Joseph, who was the favorite son. Again, not a good idea. I'm just saying this is what he did. He's still protecting, still a little bit strategizing, right? But then, this is beautiful, I think. All of the, other, the rest of the story, if you're following the narrative, Jacob sends other people ahead to do his work for him. Go tell Esau this. Go butter him up this way. We'll send this group here. We'll send this group here. Tell him this. Tell him this. If he says this, tell him this. Tell him this. I'll be in back. You come and tell me what happens. Look at verse 3. He... Jacob himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. Maybe for the first time, and who knows how long it lasted, Jacob is saying, you know what? If I have the blessing that is you, I can deal with everything else, no matter what might come. 
That's the situation we're in. If we lay hold of the gospel and the full blessing of union with Christ, we can deal with anything else. This same God Jacob wrestled with is the same God who dwells in you if you're in Christ. He hasn't changed. He calls us to deal with him alone first, first. Not to dismiss all the circumstances, but to deal with them first. But we deal with him first. What words of blessing does this one speak over you? It's something like this. Chosen, holy, dearly loved, son, daughter, forgiven, free, secured, raised up with Christ, the one that I love. Guys, if we take that to our heart, if we take that to our soul, we can deal with anything. Right? Now we're, we're designed to deal with any community, but we're designed to work it out alone with God. A God who has wrestled for us with intent to give us blessing who did not limp away after he wrestled with us, but was carried away to a tomb from which he broke the power of death and was resurrected and now sits enthroned in heaven, the same one who dwells in us, to give us power to stand in this grace that he purchased for us by wrestling for us. And this, this he presses on us with vibrant reality in the communion table every week as it is, it is a pointer to Jesus wrestling for us and his victory for us and his intention to do us good. I'm going to pray and ask Taylor to come and lead us through that. Lord Jesus, thank you for, for fighting for us. You wrestled against the power of sin and evil and darkness and devastation and destruction and you took it to the grave that we may be free. Now, in our freedom, let us take that to ourselves in your table. Let, us, let that be catalytic in our own soul that we may become before you this week to deal with you, a God who only now intends to give us grace and goodness. In Christ's name, amen.